Father, we thank you now that we can open your word. We pray that you might be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, um, last week, if you were with us, you know I began by asking the question, is, or at least making the observation, I don't always understand why people behave the way they do, and it was the Super Bowl last week. So, one of the things that I mentioned is, why do they hate on Tom Brady so much? All right, and all of you probably have your own reasons why you might hate the guy. And it was just very fitting that, that later that day, or Monday, I think it was, Adam Lockstead sends me a, a meme, and it, here's what it is. It says this. This is Tom Brady, of course. The haters are calling again. Tell them I only answer after six rings. <laughs> and if you count, there are six, Okay. So it was proclaimed by one of the announcers after the game, if you happen to catch it, that now with six rings, he's the best ever. It's just boom, he's the best, because he has the rings to prove it. So that means he's like this one-of-a-kind kind of a guy. And I will grant that he's obviously very, very good. And I don't hate the guy. But there's some things about when we identify people like this, and we look up to them, and we, we say... Wow, aren't they amazing? There's some things I would like to just make clear. First of all, they didn't get there by themselves. Tom Brady did not get there simply because he's Tom Brady. There was a whole slew of people around him, supporting him, helping him get there, training him, teaching him. And I wonder, would he have been Tom Brady without Belichick as his head coach? They just had a great combination of things, and they're building things around him, making it work. And the reason that I ask that question is the other quarterback, whose name I can't remember, before the game started, they commented on him that he had his, the beginning to his professional career wasn't all that great. And he'd gone like 0-6 or 0-7 with some other club. They brought him over to L.A. Now he's in a different system. Boom, he's winning. He's got him in the Super Bowl. Okay, so there was something about what was around him because it's still the same guy. So, first of all, they didn't get there by themselves when we think about these people who stand out to us as so incredible. But also, there's always another one like them. There's always another who you put him into the same league. So a guy might say, well, Brady's got that many rings. Obviously, he's the best. And to which I've, you know, I've read stuff that says, guess what? I, forgive me, Vikings fans, but Aaron Rodgers has some statistics that have been phenomenal. But he doesn't have the rest of the system around him. Plus, also, when he says he's the best ever, I find myself, here's the other thing that goes through my mind. I have, a, I have a childhood memory, and I'm pretty certain who I have it of is Bart Starr. Remember the days when these quarterbacks, their helmet had one bar in front of them? Isn't that true, Jeff? Am I right? Bart Starr, one bar. Okay, now what am I saying by that? Their equipment was entirely different. I wonder if Tom Brady could have held up with what Bart Starr was playing in because the game was different then. So we make the statement of how he's the best ever. That puts him in a class by himself. And I say, I don't take away from him. He's very, very good. But there are others, given different circumstances, I believe, would compete with Tom Brady head to head. When John writes his gospel... He clearly has a passion to communicate to his readers that he's writing about somebody who is absolutely different 
than anyone else. He stands out by himself, and nobody compares. Here's one thing that he writes, and here's my point being this. One, what he does, he does by himself, as opposed to a Brady who's got an entire slew of people building things around him. John 10, 17, and 18, Jesus is quoted as saying this, I have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it up again. Resident within himself. Nobody's going to take his life from him because he can defend himself against anyone. And once he has laid down his life in himself, he will be able to bring it back again. He can do it by himself. Also, there's not another one like him. And that's the emphasis, one of the emphasis that John is making in our text for today. John goes through great pains to show us the uniqueness and the differentness of who Jesus Christ is. That he is in a class by himself. And in John chapter 1, I want to pick it up right there. John 1, 1. By the way, this, this passage of scripture, I cannot, I can't read it without just being absolutely in awe of what we are reading here. And it's why for the first of two messages in John that uh, I just had, to, just had to stop here. Listen to John as he writes. You can just picture this guy about 90 years old on the island of Patmos, nearing the end of his life, and he was going to give this account of Jesus. And he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This 14th verse is our verse for today. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. 
if you're looking at our notes for today, I just, there's two active verbs, verbs here that just basically structure our notes for us. And the first one is simply, he became. He became. This one who is the word, this one who is the divine logos, this one who is the very expression in his being, the very expression of the essence of God, became flesh. Entered into human existence. And he dwelt among us. The word literally is he tabernacled among us. And in that, it draws our thinking back immediately. It draws our thinking back immediately to Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. Where God said to Moses, he gave him instructions that they were to build a tabernacle. He said that I might dwell among them. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? We don't have time to develop it. Maybe we will in a message one day. But here's an interesting thought. In the Old Testament, under the context of that Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Father, making himself known through the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of the cloud by day, said, I'll meet with you, over, with you over the mercy seat. But the point of that tabernacle where they had the ark, and we looked at that in a detailed way um, when we studied the book of Hebrews, um, where they had that ark, and when they had that tabernacle, God is saying, I will be present with you. And he was. That was the father. As you come in redemptive history to the time, place now for the son to make himself known, he takes on human flesh. And the son dwells among mankind. So specifically what John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then after Christ was gone, he had said ahead of time, he said it before he left, I will send you another comforter. And he sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in the church and in the people of the church. And we become the temple of God. Just, just a thought to throw out there. That throughout the time of redemptive history, each person of the Trinity... There was a time frame in which they were manifesting the presence of God in our midst. But as John is writing about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, effectively, this one who created all of creation, we do understand that, don't we? Right there in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is what theologians will say was the agent of creation. The one who created now entered into his creation and became a part of it. Think of that. I'm not saying I can explain it. I'm not saying I can understand it. I'm saying that's what the scripture says, so I accept it. But it sure means Jesus Christ is someone different than the rest of us. And in that context, let's remind ourselves, I've said it enough here. You're probably like, yeah, we got that care, but let's remind ourselves that in this con- context where he came and he, he took on flesh, he now exists as fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. Forever combined. But the one who created stepped into his creation. I don't... I, I, 
Will you, will you forgive me if, you know, don't come, don't come raging at me with, you know, fire in your eyes afterwards if you say, that was horrible that you said that. But it was a thought that crossed my mind. And it has to do with the old Mary Poppins. I have seen the new one, and as I recall, I enjoyed it. I just haven't seen it enough to remember it. I think there was a similar scene. But in the old Mary Poppins, which we showed to our kids, you will recall that there's the chimney sweep by the name of Bert. And Bert creates a scene on the sidewalk with some chalk art. So he has created this image, this picture, this place, and then what do they do? They jump into it. And now Bert's in the creation that he made. Now we know that was fantasy. But what Jesus Christ did, he created everything you see around us and then stepped and took part in it and became a part of it, if you will. Magnificent truth. Fully God, fully human. Amazing. Amazing. This is why... What John is, is, is so intent upon getting it across to us. Who this is, he is declaring. This is one who is singular in his existence that nobody comes close to being like him. And John says, he became, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And the next thing he says, and we beheld. He became, we beheld. We beheld his glory. This is one of those words that I, I have a hard time defining for you, quite honestly. I, I think the thing that helps me best understand it, so I'll throw it out to you as you reflect on these things for yourself, is this, that one of, one of, the, one of the understandings of glory is just simply, in its root form, it means shining. So there's this emanation, this thing that goes forth. And in, 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 under, in hearing that and understanding, it helps me to understand personally this idea of there's a brightness in him. There's amazing splendor that is in him. And John says, and we beheld this. We saw this. Now, most people wouldn't see it just in looking at Jesus because they'd see his humanity. But don't forget, John was taken up. Uh, upon the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus revealed this to him and to others of the disciples. He also, he also saw it, if you will, when they saw the resurrected Christ in his glorified state. He is the only begotten of the Father. Twice among these verses, but specifically in ours, he, he references it again in verse uh, 17. Uh, 18, excuse me. So at verses 14 and 18, he references that Christ is the only begotten. The word there then carries with it this idea is absolutely unique. There's not another one kind of like him. There's not another one that if you adjust the parameters, you can say, well, they're kind of on the same plane. It's kind of like two good quarterbacks played in different eras, and and you have to shift your understanding because the game changed. No, there's nothing that changes here, friends. There's nothing that comes close. He is the only begotten of the Father, completely unique, no one else like him, and no one's ever going to break his records. No one's ever going to begin to contend with him in terms of greatness and glory and wonder. And he says, this is also what we saw in his glory. He was full of grace and truth. 
I mean, friends, you could spend an entire day just trying to reflect on just that thought alone. Jesus Christ came. John says, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And I think to have some sense of understanding what John is getting at, we have to see how in verse 17 he places that in contrast to something to help us understand. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he sets one against the other. Now we have to understand Paul will tell us that the law is holy and righteous and just. What I'm about to say, don't misread me into my saying something about the law was wrong or bad or anything. Please don't read that in. But what was the point of the law? The law revealed the righteous, holy demands of a totally sovereign, righteous, holy God. And the point of the law was to reveal the standards that he required of us. And what he would require for us, now as fallen people, as the scripture reveals to us, to be restored to him. And that's where that whole tabernacle system comes into play, doesn't it? The blood of the innocent animal placed upon the mercy seat of the ark. And he said, every year that needs to happen and I will meet with you there. And that will become a covering for the next year. And... This is what the law requires. And what we find in reading our Old Testament, looking at the Old Covenant, and we don't even have to read it and look at it, to be honest with you. We find it in our own experience, don't we? We can't live up to that perfect, holy, righteous standard. There's not one of us who can do that. So here's the contrast When it says it's full of grace, the law was filled with God's righteous demands and just righteous demands. You understand that? God had every every right in his being to call for this high and perfect standard. The law was filled with God's righteous demands, but Christ was filled with God's righteous help. Because we were never going to make it. To live up to those demands. He was full of grace. And full of truth. He didn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. So that everything that comes forth from him. Whether it's a spoken word. Whether it's an act whether it's anything that you understand of him or I understand of him, it is an expression of truth. There's nothing in him that ever expressed darkness or falsehood because he is the truth. Again, a little aside. Have you ever noticed that for you and me and for others around us, this one thing we just, for whatever reason, it really gets our hackles up, and as if somebody lies to us. People lie to us, man, don't you lie to me. For somehow I like, hey, it's me you're talking to. You better not lie to me, because it's me. I've never lied to anybody. <laughs> yeah, right, okay, all right. But somehow we take such personal offense to be lied to. 
And I find myself asking this question. If we, are, if we are so offended that somebody would lie to us, then why are we not more determined to get to know Christ who will never lie to us? To know him better. To know that, hey, here's one place I can go. He will never communicate darkness or falsehood to me. Everything about him is truth. That, that, just, just a thought. But you see, the truth about me that is accompanied with grace for me is absolutely necessary. And it's necessary for each one of us, right? Because if Christ were simply to declare truth about each one of us, we'd be in kind of a bad way. If he just kind of started naming, if he showed up here today and just said, well, let me start with Miles, okay? And he'd be about a quarter way through the list of the truth about Miles, and then Judy'd be standing up saying, hey, don't forget this, and don't forget that, all right? And he'd go all around this room and every one of us would just be, just be humbled in shame because the truth about us is not good. But as he comes to us in truth, the truth comes hand in hand with grace. So he, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, get us off the hook by saying, well, you're, you're really not all that bad. He goes, oh, yeah, you are. You are. The truth is you are. You've missed my father's standards but that's why I'm here because I've come with grace to help alleviate the problem you have that you really don't measure up very well to the truth so friends here's what John said he became we beheld what I would just like to wrap up with is this thought That what John's book is about is our invitation. The invitation to us as readers, behold. Behold this one whom we already have beheld in time, space, history, but I'm writing about him now so you can behold him in his written word. Which is again an expression of God. This is the written logos. Christ was the incarnate logos. And with that invitation, a couple of summary thoughts. If we understand who he is, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. First, it's a reason to get lost in worship, to abandon ourselves, to exalt him. You know, there may be some cold, wintry morning, and you say to yourself, why why should I get up in the cold again? to go to church, to join with these people, because, friends, this never changes. We have people here today, and some some are in wonderful places where they just had a great week, and they're excited, it's easy to celebrate Jesus and say how good God is. We have other people who are wondering if their loved ones are going to make it through the week, who are wondering about a financial setback that has, has come, who are wondering, you know, waiting for test results, doesn't feel so exciting to praise God in these settings. But what I'm trying to get at, friends, is there's always a reason to praise God and to, and to enter complete, completely, to give complete abandon, abandonment to the praise that we offer to Him because of who He is. And it doesn't change with our circumstances. And John says, Behold the one 
the logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Behold him for yourself. That's why he's writing. Secondly, as a reason to go deeper in discipleship, you know, Cooperstown committed to the connecting campers to Christ. All right, well, well, why would we do that? John chapter 6 is one of those moments. In John's gospel, if you read it, you will find repeatedly he's declaring who Christ is, but he's also telling us the response to Christ. He's telling us some received it, some didn't. Throughout the entire book, that's what he's trying to point us towards. Make sure you receive this truth about who he is. But in John chapter 6, after Jesus made some rather controversial statements that some people didn't know how to abide, they're referred to as his disciples. They'd been following up to that point. They leave. And he says to the 12 around him, are you going to go also? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? Where would we go? You alone have the words of life. Friends, that truth needs to get hold of each one of us. We need to let that sink down inside of us. Because that is the truth that will keep us on a track of discipleship because we understand anywhere else I turn, I'm getting less than the truth. If I follow anyone else, if I follow any other system, any other worldviews, I am now walking into the darkness of whoever decided to set that forth and manifest such a worldview, such a system, such a philosophy. I'm just entering into their darkness. Why would I do that when Christ alone is truth and will always lead me in ways of truth? It's also, friends, a reason to be engaged in gospel ministry. Where is our place of service? Others need to know him also. There are people caught up in the darkness and the turmoil of this world, and they're right around us. We need to speak up. We need to be engaged in, in, in being a presence for the gospel and sometimes it's going to be in a formal setting like, hey, we need help in Awana. Sometimes it's going to be just the testimony that we are and the words that we share in our day-to-day life. Last thought, friends. As we consider how John portrays Christ, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. I'd like to throw this out. He is a refreshing escape from this world grace and truth are the antidote that this world needs to the anger and the lies around us because it is out there and people are living in it every day and the anger the hate the bitterness the lies the falsehoods the deceptions it's just where people live and Jesus Christ if you will behold him will become an oasis for our spirits. Something that we can just finally be at peace and finally have a sense of there's some order somewhere and all of this other stuff that we find so demeaning and so degrading and so unsatisfying begins to fade as we look at him. And remember that, that he told us it would be this way. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So... John invites us to come and behold him and enter into this overcoming that he is doing. He became, John writes, we beheld, and he offers us this, in, this invitation to come and behold. 
One line to a song we sang earlier was this, open up the heavens. We want to see you. This is the one whom we're singing about, who we need to see. And when we understand who he is, then our lives will be changed because of that. So my friends, continue to seek Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who came in all the fullness of grace and truth. Father, thank you for the magnificence of your Son, for the amazing truth that John is passionately setting before us, desiring ever so much that we would grasp it. And now, Father, we pray that from the stammering words that have been spoken this morning, Lord, you will direct each of us into the truth of Jesus Christ according to the need that we all have, Father. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.